0: And welcome back to The Heather McCoy Show. Joining me on the line is Ethan N. Alkind, the author of the book Railtown, The Fight for the Los Angeles Metro and the Future of the City. The book is issued by University of California Press. Welcome to the show, Ethan.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Oh, you're welcome. And so your book, Railtown, mainly focuses on the history of metro rail from uh, Mayor Tom Bradley's election in 1973 to present day. But let's give our listeners some background on the about rail in this region, can you talk about the old red car system and why it was originally built?
1: Sure. So a lot of Angelinos do uh, think wistfully about those days when there was the the old uh, streetcar network, and they're called cars, but they were really a, a system of trolleys, and they were the original main form of transportation for people who moved to Southern California, and particularly L.A. in the late 1800s. So they were actually funded by real estate developers because in the days before the automobile, if you wanted to build, let's say, a subdivision or a new town somewhere far from the commercial center, you needed to find a way to get people out there and people wanting to buy those homes. So they actually invested in those trolleys to drive up demand for their real estate, and that's how the system started.
0: So what was the contributor to the downfall? Was it all the automobile, or was it like you framed Roger Rabbit, where the oil and gas companies conspired to take the red cars apart?
1: Well, you know, it's a common uh, sort of conspiracy theory that there was, you know, an automobile and oil and gas uh, collusion to undermine the streetcars. But the reality is that across the United States, with the advent of the automobile, people preferred to drive in their own vehicle rather than get on a crowded a trolley car that you know might be late or or uh, or be delayed in some way, or or you'd feel like you're sort of crammed in there in an unpleasant condition. So you know it, it's hard for us to imagine now when you know a lot of us are stuck in traffic and we have to deal with the smog. But if you look at a world you know hundred years ago where there were a lot fewer people. Uh, you know, an automobile was a very attractive thing. It could get you anywhere you wanted to go, and you didn't have to deal with the crowd. So it, it provided freedom to move around, and people embraced it wholeheartedly. So you saw these streetcar systems in every city, every major American city, essentially start to lose money in the case of l a the voters did not want to step in and and rescue these street cars, so they they went under because there was no public entity willing to support them anymore and You know as I mentioned, they were originally sort of lost leaders but, uh, funded by real estate developers so they were always a means to generate land value, but never a means to generate a profit.
0: And even as a loss leader, it must have been cheaper to build because you didn't have any like existing property issues because the, the land was basically not really... It was basically open space at that time.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, a lot of these were converted farms and, and ranches, so you just you, know, you buy them up and you can just put the tracks anywhere you want. And so now going back in and trying... Well, in some cases those the rights of way are still in existence although they've been built on, but in a few cases in LA they've been able to essentially recreate a new new light rail system over the old streetcar tracks, but now since the city's so built up, you pretty much have to tunnel underneath, which is really expensive. So, those were the glory days of being able to just <laughs> lay out trains you know, wherever you wanted.
0: Definitely. The origins of the system that we have today, MetroLink was started by Mayor Tom Bradley after his election in 1973. Although he was haunted by his 18-month pledge to start work on a rail system and his original proposition A went down, he still persisted. If we didn't have a mayor that pursued the rail with that tenacity, would we have MetroLink today?
1: I don't think so. So actually it's actually MetroRail because Metro MetroLink rail. The, uh, was is a commuter system that's uh, works it, it intersects with metro rail, but it 's a different type of of uh, rail transit but I absolutely agree with you that it took the persistent leadership of somebody like Mayor Bradley to make make it happen because it was multi decades of uh, of really battling politically now there was a lot of support he had a lot of support from downtown business leaders in l a who were very concerned that downtown L.A. was essentially going to hollow out and become a, a wasteland, and they all owned property down there and didn't want to lose those property values. And a lot of residents in, in L.A. County were really fed up with the traffic and the bad air and all the negative consequences of, of auto-dependency. But it was still a challenge in a county as big as L.A. to get a consensus to pursue rail as, a, as an alternative to driving. So that, that really was a credit to Bradley for making that happen.
0: Why did proposition A, the first effort to fund rail, why did that fail?
1: So there's a lot of, you know, potential reasons. I think part of it is that the county as a whole was not really ready. To embrace transit in the early 70s, this was in 1974. Uh, but also the transit agency, which was the RTD at the time. Now it's Metro, but uh, it was called RTD. That agency was really unpopular. There were a lot of bus strikes and people were upset with it, so didn't have a lot of support. But I, and I think maybe even more fundamental than that, that the county is so big. How do you get a consensus? You know, over 50%. It's easy to get over 50% in the sort of urban core of LA, say the West Side and downtown and the East Side of LA. But when you get out into really far flung areas, you know, you think of Lancaster, or Palmdale in the 70s, early 70s, you know, or even up in the Santa Clarita Valley. I mean, to get a majority of all those kinds of voters who really don't see any value in a rail system that's more focused on downtown, you know, it's hard to get over that 50 percent threshold. And now, actually, since that vote in the 70s, it's actually a two-thirds threshold. So now if you want to get a transit tax passed, you've got to get over 66 and two-thirds percent.
0: Yeah. What were the critics saying about rail in 1974?
1: So a lot of them were saying it was a waste of money, that Los Angeles was a car town and people would never get out of their cars. Uh, but that was really the main thing. I think it was a waste of money and people wouldn't really ride it.
0: Yeah. One of the weird things is USC professor Peter Gordon wanted more highways built. My question to him would be, OK, where would you build them? The highway system seems already saturated already, even in the 70s. Also, buses get stuck in traffic, which start off their schedule.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah I know yeah, uh, it's weird uh, and Peter Gordon is actually still quite active today, you know sort of an anti transit agenda. I think a lot of the academics who were really critical in the seventies I mean there certainly was a good case to be made that there might have been cheaper ways of moving people around than than rail, uh, but I think a lot of them were motivated by the sense that there's no need to subsidize people wanting to live in an urban, walkable community, that the preference of most people is to live in a suburban, car-oriented lifestyle, and they just t- sort of assume that as a given, and that therefore it doesn't make sense to subsidize any sort of infrastructure that counters that, uh, that demand. And you know, they may have been somewhat right back in the 70s, but I, I think it's clear now that the demographics and the market have changed, and people are really hungering for a more convenient lifestyle and more convenient neighborhoods. So I think that bias in a lot a lot of the academic critiques really colored how they analyzed the rail system and, and why they looked at it so negatively. And certainly someone like Peter Gordon has, I think, made it no secret that he's kind of a libertarian and and really doesn't uh, like any sort of subsidies, especially for, for urban dwellers.
0: Yeah, definitely. Mayor Bradley's first attempt at rail was a, a before-mentioned Proposition A in 1974. The proposition proposed a 145-mile system Is there any way to speculate what rail would look like today if Proposition A passed in 1974?
1: Well, it would, have, it would be a much more extensive network if it had passed since 1974 as opposed to when it, it actually did pass in 1980. And I say that because there was a lot more federal money on the table in the 70s. By the time Ronald Reagan was elected in 1980, his administration really cut back on support for urban rail systems. And so Los Angeles would have had 80% of the system paid for by the federal government, which is really an, uh, Angelino tax dollars. I mean, LA is a donor city in terms of uh, tax dollars and gets less... Backs, than it gives into the federal government. So, you know, it would have been a much better deal with 80%. By the time they finally got their system negotiated for it, was down to 50%. So That's a, a major cut. And on top of that, it's much more difficult now to build urban rail than it was in the in the late 60s and maybe the early 70s, too, because we have a lot more stringent regulations. Uh, we have environmental laws that uh, can really make it challenging to get a big infrastructure project approved, as we're seeing now with high-speed rail and, uh, and some other rail lines. So they, it was really a window that was pretty generous and closed quickly. And so I think you'd see a system that's probably twice as big as what we have today if they had passed it even just those six years earlier than what they ended up passing.
0: Yeah, the defeat of Proposition A led Mayor Bradley to take a step back in his transit plan. So his main focus became funding a single subway line. Uh, and while the Board of Supervisors wanted to build a broader system, can you talk about how the splinter and strategy formed two separate government agencies to do the exact same thing?
1: <laughs> yeah so this is this is another consequence of having a large county in a in a big city right in the middle of a, of a large county that you 're going to have different visions for how to go forward. So we, Mayor Bradley was very focused on downtown LA, as I mentioned, the downtown businesses there, were, you know, really wanted it, and that was the most dense center of, of LA. So he was focused on that, and and was able to finally get federal approval to build a pretty expensive, what we call heavy rail subway. So heavy rail meaning you get power from down below; it's the third rail kind of technology. Uh, but meanwhile, the county board of supervisors wanted a more longer distance system because you know they were representing, you know, just the sort of five quadrants, or I shouldn't say quadrants, but. You you know, five sections of, of L.A. County. And so they wanted a light rail system that could travel longer distances. And they ended up getting a sales tax measure that paid for light rail lines. That, uh, so now we have two, basically two types of technologies for rail in L.A. We have the light rail, which gets power from overhead and can travel on the streets. And we have the underground subway that Bradley pushed for to serve downtown.
0: Yeah, uh funding for rail was put in the ballot finally as proposition A ironically in 1980. What made that election different and it was actually approved by the voters.
1: So it, it's funny because it did happen on the same day that they elected uh, Ronald Reagan president. So we had this sort of conservative revolution nationwide and in California, but uh but at the same time I think Angelinos were you know finally at that point where they were willing to embrace a different type of transportation technology. But it also helped that it was a much more balanced plan. So, the plans that went before the voters in the late 60s and the 70s were much more rail-heavy. And this time, they sort of learned a lesson that they needed to bring together a more diverse coalition, and especially, again, with a county as big as L.A., with people of different interests. So, they had a component in there that lowered bus fares for a time. So, you got all the bus riders uh, you know, excited about it, because it meant a cheaper ride. And they also had local return to some of the smaller cities around LA County, so they would get money for transportation improvements, whatever they would see fit in their town. So they are able to put together a a bigger coalition, and and that got it started. But the the trade-off was that there was less money of the sales tax devoted to rail.
0: Well, in this time also, RTD was busy working on the subway system. How did political considerations affect the selection of the route with the subway?
1: So uh, political considerations definitely uh, were a big factor. So uh, originally, you know, these rail lines would start off, we'd have engineers and, and analysts looking at where the density is in L.A., and they'd make some proposals. But then once those proposals were on the table, the politicians would essentially get together and sort of horse trade and come with uh, all sorts of compromises to serve important constituencies. So, for example, the rail line always was going to serve downtown L.A., but it really should have continued directly west down Wilshire Boulevard, which is... The most densely populated corridor in uh, west of the Mississippi, so there's a great uh, place for to get attract a lot of riders and basically, you want to put rail where the density is, but they had to serve the San Fernando Valley because of all the political power up there, and they also eventually needed to serve Hollywood because the State senator from Hollywood happened to be the president of the, of the California State Senate and had a lot of influence over where state gas tax dollars were going to go, and that was a big part of the funding equation. So basically, they went out of Wilshire as far as they could, but then they had to jog north up into Hollywood and then into the San Fernando Valley, for what I would call, you know, basically purely political reasons. Although there is there is some density and some logic to serving those areas, they should not have been served at that time over an area like the rest of the Wilshire corridor.
0: Yeah, well, political considerations played a effect in route consideration. Some of the ridership issues of Metro is due to that fact, and also it seems like it's the fact that planners are eager to buy uh, rail right aways of existing track instead of going through the added expense of building new track where more people were at. Does this lead back to funding again?
1: Yeah, I mean, when you don't have a lot of dollars to work with, you try to build it as cheaply as you can and uh another thing about an existing rail right away is that not only is it you know, cheaper to build where there's already, you know, old, you know, maybe defunct tracks or existing freight tracks. But you're also going to be away from neighborhoods that don't have rail and therefore might complain having a new rail line come through, which we definitely saw happen over and over again. So the, the effort to save costs on uh, railroad selection was a huge driving factor.
0: So the Proposition A funded the blue line and the green line. What are the differences between the blue line and the green line?
1: So the blue line was on the the same tracks as the last Pacific Electric streetcar line. So uh, there's some certain irony in the first rail line in L.A. being on the bones of the old uh, streetcar system that closed in 1961. Uh, But it it serves an area that used to be served by streetcars. So in some ways, the area around it was was sort of designed for the streetcars. But at the same time, it it was sort of far from the heart of the more densely populated parts of South L.A., as opposed to like Vermont Avenue, for example, which which is a really heavily traveled corridor, so it doesn't serve you know the most uh, the most density, and it's it's kind of a, it goes through a lot of blighted areas and industrial type areas. I mean even today, if you ride through it, there's uh, not a lot of development around the stations. Although some of the cities are really trying their best to to get development around there. And then meanwhile, the Green Line was almost sort of an accidental line, but they were trying to uh, they were trying to build a highway. Uh, from essentially the uh, the South Bay or near the South Bay of, of Los Angeles out to the east towards Norwalk, and to serve the aerospace industry just near LAX, and uh, they were trying to build a highway, and there were lawsuits, and over a decade, and finally there was a compromise to build the highway with a transit uh, available lane down the middle, and it didn't have to be rail, but the rail agency leaders felt like it was a great opportunity. So they decided to put the green line right down the middle of the freeway, and it means you could travel at very uh, high speeds in the middle of the freeway, but it also means there's no opportunity for development around the station areas because they're right in the middle of the freeway. And it's also kind of an unpleasant place to wait for a train when you're right in the middle of the, of the freeway. So uh, it, it, the ridership was pretty good on the green line, but you know, in retrospect, there were a lot of other areas that probably could have benefited from rail service over that one.
0: It's amazing how much the story you tell is just due to circumstances, like the circumstances of who was city manager when the city of Norwalk, uh, you know, when the officials wanted to build the line all the way to the train station and the city of Norwalk manager at the time said no. And then the next one said yes, but then it was too late.
1: Yeah, that story is definitely a bit of a tragedy because the Green Line never ended up going to LAX. It came very close. And then on the other end, it, yeah, as you say, it fell short of, of Norwalk and today it would have connected to the Metro Lake station there. It's just, I think, two miles short and that would have been a really great connection for folks and boosted ridership but exactly as you say the city of Norwalk said no at first and then changed their mind and it was too late at that point cuz all the engineering and studies had been done and the budget was set so yeah there's a lot of you know a lot of personalities that come to play and that's really the story of Los Angeles politics cuz it's just so decentralized you know the mayor of LA dominates in some ways but at the same time the mayor of l.a. has to take a back seat to the city council members and then you've also got board of supervisors and then all the other cities and their city councils and mayors and city managers so it's sort of a giant committee or, you know, of people making decisions in L.A., and it's really hard to get consensus on, on these big types of projects.
0: Yeah. As it turned out, the Proposition A in 1980 only was able to fund two lines, the blue line and the green line. I think the real shame of never having enough money to fund the whole system at once, it led to the infighting, as we were talking about earlier, be- between the San Fernando Valley and, you know, the Bus Riders Union in the 19. 1980- uh, '90s, as far as saying that the you know rail system was discriminatory, I think if you had the whole map at once and it served everybody at once, that if you complete the whole project like it was a public works project from the federal government, I think a lot of the ugliness would have been avoided.
1: It definitely made things worse. The fact that there were you know, only a few pieces of the pie to fight over, it, it really brought out the regional rivalries within within LA. You know the bus riders union is a whole interesting story. I mean, there's basically bus riders who felt like the bus system was constantly being shortchanged and then they see, you know, billions of dollars being spent on rail lines for not as not that many riders or relatively not that many riders. So they may have been upset anyways, but it's also a function of the fact that they feel like second class citizens riding a you know an underinvested form of transit with buses that in that, a lot of the riders who ride those buses have no other way of getting around so and are very low income a lot of them so it's uh you know that that tension is there but i, I think also a, a product of the fact that we just don't invest a lot in uh, in transit in general
0: yeah well do the buses actually do a good job of connecting to the rail lines so that's part of their transportation plan or
1: yeah they, they but, you know a lot of the rail lines replaced very busy bus corridors, and then they would try to reroute buses to serve you know more popular stations and and uh, you know and they're, they're doing the best they can, but it, it does take a while when you build a rail system, especially when it was done piecemeal in l a It takes a while to really build up that connectivity among the rail lines and the, and also to build up the new centers of jobs and housing that that you know we hope will come up around the rail stations to make them more popular destinations, and that should boost ridership across the board and hopefully you know speed travel times for people, so bus riders definitely can benefit, but uh you know the rail system doesn't cover a lot of areas of l a and so if you' if you live or work in those areas you're still going to have to take the bus and and uh, so I think you know those people rightly advocate for better service for themselves
0: that was one of the definitely one of the most- po- frustrating parts of the book was the fact that building a rail system was called racist, and then the valley politicians distorting priorities to build more to build out in the Valley rather than LA. How, when will the inefficiencies of the system due to the fact it doesn't serve higher population areas like Wilshire still to this day?
1: Uh, so I, I think actually LA is now poised to really fill in the system. Uh, I mean, I've, lo- I've looked at it as sort of a half-built, half-built system but now we're starting to close those those really big gaps. So when we mention how there's two types of, of uh, rail technologies in L.A., the light rail and the heavy rail, there's that's sort of um, being fixed to some extent because they're building our, what's called the regional connector in downtown L.A., which will connect the light rail line so you can have a one-seat ride from Pasadena all the way down to Long Beach or even out to Santa Monica once they build that. Because right now you've got to transfer to the heavy rail line and then get off and transfer back to the light rail line. So it's not... Not seamless, but that will really uh, that will boost ridership across the system by have, by really speeding up travel times and convenience that way. And then also, you know, more importantly, Wilshire Corridor is finally going to get heavy rail service, but it's going to take a couple decades. They're planning to extend the Wilshire subway line all the way down past Westwood, but not until the late 2030s at this rate. So it's, you know, I wouldn't <laughs> hold your breath, but uh, but it will finally get filled in. And, and there, there may be ways to expedite it, which I know they're looking into. And my hope is that people in the area really demand that it get built faster than that because it is the number one place where rail should should happen in L.A.
0: One thing that the Red Line did do really well was the development opportunities around the stations seems like there's a lot of buildings around there as far as like new housing and stuff like that with station development opportunities adding to property values around stations i'm surprised that uh more funding for these rail trains haven't been provided by tax incremental financing as we discussed on the show there's a lot of inappropriate uses for tifs but this one seems like an inappropriate use
1: yeah I absolutely agree. It harkens back to that original streetcar model where it was real estate uh, value increases that funded rail and you know there 's no reason why L.A. can 't go back to that. They actually did that for well, the second stage of the subway where they had what was called the benefit assessment district where they did uh, assess properties that would benefit from the advent of rail in the neighborhood uh, to help cover some of the costs and i think I think uh, tax increment financing to Borrow against the future increases in uh, in property tax revenue from the new infrastructure investment. I think that's uh, wholly appropriate. And if you're conferring this benefit onto private landowners from a public investment, I think it's only fair to recapture some of that to help fund that infrastructure in the first place. So, oh, definitely.
0: Um, One of the other frustrating things when I was reading your book was the lack of talk about, like, hyperlinks within the system. So if you want to get from Pasadena to Santa Monica, you need a second train that moves a lot faster than just the light rail. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, so I think the regional connector will help with that. uh, But, you know, they'll have to fill in a a few few corridors. um, And, uh, you know, also I didn't mention with the Crenshaw line, will will likely provide a rail connection to LAX and also provide a a whole separate north-south uh, link uh, farther west from where the blue line goes north to south. So we're starting to get a sort of grid pattern coming in. And I should also mention that Santa Monica will finally get rail service and the Expo line coming out there, uh, which should open uh, in the next few years.
0: And the Expo line goes all the way to 3rd Street, or is it stopping, stopping short from that?
1: It basically stops right at right at 3rd Street. Oh, I mean, that's awesome. Yeah, just a block or, or two away. But uh, that'll, uh, And Santa Monica's done a great job of getting de- uh, new housing in the downtown area uh so yeah we're definitely seeing development around the stations but we need to see a lot more of that because you know millions more people are projected to come to LA in the coming decades and we've also got an affordability problem where the housing is so expensive, and part of that is constricted supply. And it's an artificial constriction because we have a lot of local governments that refuse to allow new development uh, because the uh, neighbors aren't excited about new people coming into their neighborhood. So until we really change that dynamic, we're going to continue to push development farther and farther out and drive up home prices to make it unaffordable for you know, anyone, you know, any any middle-class type family. And it hurts business in L.A., too, because then you end up with a stronger income inequality of a city of haves and, and have-nots, and it's harder for businesses to attract uh, people to come work for them if the housing prices are so expensive and people have to move so far out to get, it a, get a decent community. So my hope is that the region will see the value of uh, building new neighborhoods and, and job centers around transit, and I think that will take a lot of pressure off the outlying areas and help help more people preserve the quality of their lives in their neighborhoods.
0: That is one of the fears that I do have about the high-speed train from Vegas and back, because I'm always afraid that basically that train is going to bail out Las Vegas real estate um, investments, and then it's going to become the suburbs of L.A., essentially, where all the poor people live out in Vegas.
1: Uh, well uh, there is uh there is some concern you know people would would use the high speed rail lines for some sort of commuter system but uh, the fact is the high speed rail is going to be real expensive to ride it'll be cheaper than an airplane flight but uh it it will still be pretty expensive so I think most people are not economically going to be able to live that far out and then commute in by high speed rail at least on a daily basis cause it's just too expensive. Uh, You know, I think the hope is, uh, looking at California's proposed high-speed rail system, for example, that more businesses can locate maybe in a place like Bakersfield or Fresno, and they could just maybe commute into L.A. for a weekly meeting or something. Or, you know, you might have certain uh, divisions or departments of a major corporation that are based out there. So that could actually be a huge economic benefit to Central Valley towns, which are really struggling economically. Um, But, yeah, we have to pay attention to the impacts on land use development. In, uh, in these areas with high-speed rail because if we don't make put in policies to steer that development in a smart way, you're just going to end up with more business as usual and, and more sprawl and traffic and air quality problems. Oh,
0: definitely. One of the other issues I have with the, the current transit system as it is, is there's not enough grade separation. So you have trains stopping at, you know, red lights like in Long Beach when the blue line first starts. It's like that the whole uh, to me, the whole idea of like public transportation, especially rail, is that you are separated away from the cars because that infrastructure is just too saturated.
1: Yeah, I agree completely. It's uh, it's definitely a source of frustration. If you build a rail line, it shouldn't have to wait at a red light for a bunch of uh, single-occupant vehicles to drive by while you've got you know 100 people waiting on the train. Or more, so a lot of that is how our uh, congestion management laws are structured, and to some extent how our environmental laws are structured because the mitigation for environmental impacts is sometimes ironically to widen streets or slow down uh, bus or rail for for cars it doesn 't really make sense, but so the Brown administration is trying to change that. Um, it may take some legislation on the congestion management side, but it doesn 't have to be that way. We could be giving. Signal priority to the rail lines and buses too, and, and we need to emphasize that because it's just ridiculous to have them going that slowly.
0: Oh, definitely. Any final thoughts to leave us with?
1: Uh, you know, the, I think the main thing is just that you know the region has to look at this infrastructure investment as a as a blueprint for future growth, uh, because the alternative is just you know uh, pretty miserable. It means a lot more traffic and a lot more lost open space and a lot more hours lost sitting there you know, for people to have to commute instead of being able to spend more time with their families and doing leisure activities and maybe getting a little more exercise. So <laughs> it's, uh, it's a good opportunity for the region, and they just need to really complete it by allowing that development to happen around the stations.
0: So the book is Rail Town, The Fight for Los Angeles, Montreal, and the Future of the City. The book is issued by University of California Press. Ethan in all kind, has been my guest. Thanks for being on the show this morning.
1: Thank you very much. Enjoyed it.
0: And this, of course, is The Heather McCoy Show.